Glad to be back with you this morning. When Pastor Phil um, asked me to preach this week, um, I was excited. I love coming out here to preach. It is one of my highlights. And I, as I thought about things, Labor Day weekend, and I had plans for a sermon on the sacredness of work. Everyone's work. Not just the people who get up here and stand behind this pulpit. And I was going to talk about the history of Labor Day weekend and where did Labor Day come from and its fairly bloody connection to Chicago. That was the plan. And then Monday happened. And my week turned upside down. Not in a good way. Um, I thought I was going to salvage the plan, but it didn't work. So I called Phil on Friday, and we talked about plan B. And I wanted to make sure, frankly, that I hadn't preached plan B here before, because it kind of blurs together over time. And we're both pretty sure that I haven't, but there is an off chance that you have heard at least parts of this before. Um, I don't have a single passage today. You do not have in your bulletin a nice outline with three points. Um, My outline is fairly simple, but and you'll be able to, to follow along pretty quickly. But what I would encourage you this morning, instead of worrying about the outline so much, is I would ask that as we begin, that you ask God what he wants you to hear this morning And write that down. Because often I find that we get obsessed about filling in the blanks and we might miss something that was frankly more important for us to hear that morning. Today you're going to hear a little bit of my story. You've heard some of it before when I've been here. But I want to look this morning at how God works in the messiness and in the pain of life. I want to look at a little bit about what I'm learning, and my goal today is simple. I want you to see that the things that we face in life, as real as they are, as messy as they are, those significant life-changing things, and as screwed up as we all are, that God is still there for all of us. So, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for all that you have done on our behalf. I thank you for being able to gather as a body, to worship you, to take communion together, to remember what you have done on our behalf and how on our own we cannot reach you, but that we don't have to. I thank you for all that you accomplish in the messiness of our lives. And I pray that this morning that you would show us how you are our God no matter what happens and that we can trust you in all of the things that happen in life. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
I guess we need to start with expectations, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about this here before, but there is something that I guarantee every one of us in this room all face together. And that is the fact that what we expect out of life and the life that we lead never completely match up. Those expectations that we have, what we want out of life, and the life that we lead are never completely the same. And there's something that I find that all of us also face. And some of you are not quite old enough for this yet, and some of you are hitting it right now. And that is that about the time we turn 16, we set into our minds and into our hearts a set of expectations for what life will be for us. I don't know what it is about 16. I think it might be biological. I have talked to youth experts who have told me that 16-year-olds, it's about the time that you turn 16 that you can even start to think long-term. Biologically, up until about this point, and even when you're 16, you literally can't think long-term consequences. Your brain isn't wired for that yet. It's making those changes then. But it's about the time we turn 16 that we start to set our expectations for life. And it doesn't matter how old we are now. I think if you were to look back at what you expected out of life when you were 16, you could probably say what that was. I remember being 16, believe it or not. I lived, I grew up in Yorkville. Not that long ago, or long, far from here, longer ago than I'd like to believe. I was a sophomore at Yorkville High School, and I took biology, and I took geometry, and Pascal, that used to be a computer language um, that people programmed in. Later that year, I would be driving what I affectionately called the Grey Ghost to, to school. Silver 1981 Pontiac Le Mans station wagon with burgundy pleather interior. And there was barely a radio. No tape deck. CDs weren't really a thing, and iPods weren't even dreamed of at the time. You know, I I have more computing power here (laughs) than I had in the computers that I was learning to program Pascal on. It was a different day. No one had cell phones. Ronald Reagan was almost out of the White House, and he was telling Mr. Gorbachev to tear down this wall. And music was decidedly different. The Bengals were walking like Egyptians, and in my opinion, the best album ever, U2's Joshua Tree, released that year. And as I was doing a little bit of a walk down memory lane, I realized that some of the movies that have become iconic were all released that year. Platoon and Lethal Weapon and Predator. And my expectations at that point in my life were to go to West Point. I had a good friend. He and I both planned on it. He went. He recently retired from the Army. And he is going back to school to be a math teacher at Yorkville High School and to take Al Gonerman's place when he retires, which is just very strange to me, let me tell you. 
I wanted to go into the army and then have a career in international relations. I did marry a Canadian, so sort of worked out. But life rarely turns out the way we expect it when we're 16. And I've never been able to settle in my mind whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or it just is. I can certainly say with the kind of certainty that I'm rarely comfortable with that I did not expect the life I'm living now. Not at all. In 1 Corinthians 13... Paul speaks famously about love. We know it as the love chapter. And then in verse 12, there's this interesting statement right at the end of that chapter. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In the King James, if you're like me, I grew up memorizing the King James and I have a very hard time memorizing in anything else because that's the way it's supposed to sound. It said, now we see through a glass darkly. The idea is that we don't get to see everything that's coming. And life isn't what I expected when I was 16. I was looking through a glass darkly. I'm now on the wrong side of 40. I have been married for over 20 years. I have three kids, three teenagers, which is really, really hard for me to wrap my head around. My oldest is 18. He has started college this year, a couple weeks ago. And you know, over the years, I tried to be the cool dad. I tried to make things. At one time, I told him, hey, you can dye your hair green if you want. And he looked at me kind of sideways and said, why on earth would I want to do that? Like, how am I supposed to say young if my kid is not willing to do things like that? (laughs) He's now in the process of kind of becoming who he's going to be, of figuring out those elements. And I am very proud of the wisdom that I've seen starting to come out And you've had Josh Oren come and speak here. And Josh's influence on my son over the last few years has been amazing. My youngest, Sierra, just turned 13 a couple of weeks ago. It's the age that uh, terrifies every father about two seconds after he's had the joy of learning he's going to have a daughter. I, I literally remember being excited, and then a second later thinking, oh God, 13. And she is my girly girl who is into volleyball and cheerleading and clothes. And now, and thankfully, power tools and building things with me. And thankfully, we have not quite reached boys yet, for which I am grateful. I am not ready for that. She isn't quite as quick with a hug these days as she used to be, but I am told with some authority that that will return in a few years. My oldest and my youngest. And then there's Nathan. And there is so much balled up into that one small sentence. Love and loss and wonder and fear 
so much. Nathan is 17. He likes many of the things his older brother likes, video games and movies and YouTube. Unbelievable amounts of YouTube. But there are differences. And there is one significant difference that blew my expectations in a lot of ways. As many of you know, Nathan is autistic. And that's the difference that made this week crazy. I love my son more than I can express, and I want the best for him. I want him to grow up to be happy and loved and as independent as he possibly can. And I want him to know and love God and to place him first. And on most days, I simply hope that we get through it without too many meltdowns, too much opposition, or incessant repetition of quotes from the latest game or movie or whatever it is. Most days, I hope that we get through it without too much work. Nathan has higher functions than many with a diagnosis of autism. He's verbal, and he's affectionate, which is different than most autistic kids. Sometimes he's too affectionate. When you see Nathan, you do not see different, at least not at first, because he looks normal, whatever that means. And he's done very well in the last several years, and he started out this school year very excited. He's a senior. And this year he is, in his own words, 100% Gen Ed. This is what he's told all of his teachers, meaning that He's in all general education classes, not in special education classes at all this year. He desperately wants to be normal to the point that he does not acknowledge his autism and will argue with you about it. One time I was preaching this sermon and he was in the audience and he was vigorously shaking his head no at this point. He's not normal. Abstract thinking is very hard. I had to help him with an English assignment this week. It took over an hour to do something that should have taken less than 15 minutes. He can't tell you why something happened or take three facts and draw an inference. He can't do it. It's very, very difficult. We had him in a computer programming class this year thinking... Rules, structure, computer languages are essentially if, then, else. That's what they do. We were a bit nervous after the open house a week and a half ago because we got the sense that the room might be a bit chaotic. And then Monday happened. There was a blow-up, a bad one. As in, Loretta had to leave school where she's at to go get him, and he had a suspension out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and two days in school suspension Thursday and Friday. And it could have been much worse. And so my expectations, just for the week, let alone my life, were off by a huge degree this week. 
And I spent a couple of days trying to work from home while I had Nathan. And Friday we had a school meeting and had to change him out of that class. And there could be more fallout. Nathan is good-natured, almost always happy, except when he gets aggravated or upset. He has a few triggers. People who do the very innocuous thing of going, shh, set him off. And chaotic classrooms, we found out this week, are still a big problem. I alternately feel that I would not trade Nathan's quirkiness as an autistic boy for anything, and then in the very same instant that there is nothing I wouldn't do to cure him so that he could live a normal life. I have lots of, or have had lots of expectations for him. And, you know, maybe I can get past my expectations. But what about my wife's? What about... His wants. Currently, he wants to move to Hollywood to be a voice actor and to make movies. He wants to be in driver's education. Now, to be perfectly honest, from a physical motor skill standpoint, he could do it very, very well. The problem would be, what happens when someone else does something wrong? And how do I explain to my 17-year-old child that he is not going to get to do these things? How do you explain life and love and hope and God? How do you explain the fact that he will probably never live on his own to him? There are a hundred thoughts in my mind right now about what Nathan can't do and what he will never experience, and I hate it. Bottom line. My wife tells me, Don't use that word. I'm trying to keep the kids from using that word. But sometimes hate is appropriate. And this is one of those times. You see, my faith is central to who I am. It is not something I have tacked on to my life. It is not something to make me feel better. It is not a Joel Osteen, your best life now. And I still believe. I believe more deeply today in God than I did when I was 16 and my expectations had not yet been shattered. But how do you tell a 17-year-old boy who does not do abstract, how do you get him to understand the consequences of his actions when as far as he's concerned, five minutes after it happened, it's done? How do you get him to understand who God is? How do you explain the need for redemption to a child who hears at church that he is supposed to be like Jesus, who is perfect, and then he is totally discombobulated when he is told, you're not perfect, and it's okay. Those two things don't go together in his mind. How do I, as a father an elder, an ordained minister, reach into his life and convey the deep truths of Scripture, of faith to him. Tuesday was interesting. We were sitting at home. We were talking about what had happened. 
And we had an amazing conversation. And it was a reminder to me that even when my expectations are shattered, that he takes in more than I expect. He asked, did I sin? And my answer was yes. And we talked about sin and salvation. And he had a whole lot more answers than I expected. We went through the Romans road, basically. And he knew them all. Now, how much he completely understands and internalizes and how much is a memorized answer, I don't know. But he had the answers right. And to be perfectly honest, I have a master's degree in theology, which basically means that I spent a lot of time and money to learn just how much we don't know about God. In the Old Testament, Nathan was a prophet. We don't know much about him other than the fact that he had the audacity to call the king on the carpet for doing evil. And my Nathan has been a prophet in my own life, one who has had the unwitting audacity to ask, to demand that I answer the question, what are you going to do about me? What are you going to do about the fact that church doesn't understand or know what to do with me or how to teach me? How to show me Jesus. The thing is, he doesn't know he's asking that question. And to be perfectly clear, that's not an accusation. That is a fact. That as the church, we don't know how to handle kids like Nathan. Let alone adults. Nathan is forcing me to change my expectations about what God is doing and what my life should look like. And I don't have all the answers. I don't even know all the right questions. But the thing about faith is it's not sight. Paul tells us that we don't see well now. We see through a glass darkly. Our expectations, whether we're 16 or 40-something or 83, aren't quite right. And of course, this leads us to the second point. Our fairly simple question, why? Mostly, I believe why is a great question. It's a question we use when we're trying to figure things out. We learn it when we're about three years old. And then we proceed to drive our parents crazy for the next several years asking why all the time. I have to be perfectly honest here. I never stopped asking why. It's my favorite question. I want to know why. I want to know why things happen. And we take it for granted as a basic question. It's how we figure things out. We take it for granted until you have a kid who doesn't understand why. Why are you upset, Nate? Because I'm crying. I know you're crying. Why are you crying? Because. And he can't get there. Now, to be fair, I've had my fair share of those conversations with my neurotypical kids as well. That's what you call the rest of us. The difference is why comes into focus a lot faster in those conversations than it does with Nathan. It might take some time, but it generally can get to why. With Nate, getting to why is like me trying to play the part of Sherlock Holmes without the uh, doctor sidekick in cool English accent to go with it. <laughs> 
you have to come at things sideways. You have to catch him off guard and ask 14 different questions all around the issue and hope that maybe you get a string of clues that you can put together to figure out what's actually going on. When I do get to why with Nathan, it feels like a revelation. Generally doesn't fix the situation, but at least I feel like, oh, I understand. And it's frustrating to live in the constant knowledge that getting to why for everyday situations, things that we take for granted, is virtually impossible. You see, I grew up in an intensely practical household. Dave knows my father. I grew up holding lights under cars and boards in place as things were being built. There didn't seem to be anything my father couldn't fix. And that was a good thing because stuff always seemed to be breaking. My dad seemed to know how everything worked and why it was broken down and what to do about it. I have since realized that my father really didn't always know what was going on or what he was getting into when he started. But my dad has a basic mechanical understanding and a mind that observed things. He took things apart and looked at how they fit together. And I mean really looked. And he remembered. And he saw what didn't fit or what was worn out or whatever. And I've learned over the years that I've had to approach Nathan the same way my father did. One of those things that were broken. Sometimes you have to break things down into component parts to figure out how they fit together. To get to why. And as much as I want it, Nate can't give me the why. Can't explain it. And he gives me very few clues to figure it out. And that's perhaps the hardest part. But I am learning that a childhood spent helping my father build and fix anything under the sun was preparation for my son. Of course, getting to why, or that question why, goes deeper than figuring out your kid. You know, when your expectations are shattered and crisis comes, you're really not asking why because you want information. I mean, you do want information, but that's secondary. When we cry out to God, why? It's a combination of question and demand all wrapped up in pain and grief and feelings of betrayal. And I am not the first person to ask God why. I am certain that there are many of you in this sanctuary who have asked those very same questions. And perhaps you're asking now. I don't know what your why is. Perhaps you're asking why about a marriage that's in crisis. Potentially that you're single in a church in church, the church world that seems to prize being married and having families above all else. Maybe you've lost your job or you're facing cancer or one or 12 of a hundred other things. What I do know is that what, whenever our expectations are shattered, we inevitably ask why. And scripture is full of people who ask why. We just spent an entire series on the book of Habakkuk 
And what did he do? He asked why. If you've read the Psalms, you know that David asks why again and again and again. Psalm 40 is one of my favorite Psalms. It's very interesting. Verses 1 to 3, we read these words that are very familiar to all of us. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. And that's what we want, right? We want God to pick us up out of the nastiness of life and put us on that rock. And we are fine with the example of being, or we are fine with the idea of being an example of God's grace as long as what it is is us looking in the rearview mirror, right? I've, I've experienced that grace and everything's good now. Yes, that bad thing happened, but it's in the past. But there's this interesting thing that happens in Psalm 40. Look at verse 11. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head and my heart fails within me. Please be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. Verses 11 to 13. That's after verses 1 to 3. After God's rescue. It doesn't technically ask why, but it's in there, right? Our expectations get shattered and we cry out to God. And I will tell you with a certainty that every parent of an autistic child asks why. And everyone facing pain does, of whatever kind, does the same thing. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my child? Why, God, why? Usually, it's alternating exasperation and rage, I find. I wish I had a good answer, but I don't. Habakkuk didn't get a good answer. And I can't give you an answer to your whys. Sometimes, There simply isn't a why, or at least not one we're going to see on this side of eternity. In my self-pitying moments, I wonder if God ever asks himself why about us. You know, like I said, I've got a master's degree in theology. I can give you arguments and cliches about how the dumb stuff that people do never surprises God. But then I think about Matthew's account of Jesus on the cross, and he asks that most disturbing question. This is what Matthew 27, verse 46 says. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the reality is, Jesus is not asking for information here. He knew the answer. 
The point that I want you to see is that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, knows such extreme agony, extreme pain and suffering that he calls out why to the Father. As a parent of an autistic child, my whys are really a demand that the pain that I have faced, that my wife has faced, and all of those lost hopes and dreams matter somehow. To be sure, I would like reasons, but it's more about making sure that there's meaning. And I, as I said, I have always been a firm believer in asking why. I think it's the most fundamental human question. And most of us spend a large amount of time keeping ourselves busy or amused or whatever, just so we don't have to ask ourselves that question. But sometimes we have to break things down before we can get to why. And I hate that. I hate it. I want the answer now. Give me a rationale. Let me evaluate it. And figure out if something I want to spend my time and energy on. But life's not like that. Why is often hidden. I would have never thought that years of oil and sawdust and hammers and wrenches and watching my father tear apart cars and rebuild garage doors from scratch and a hundred other things that I don't remember right now. And my mother coming downstairs into the basement at 10 o'clock at night saying, Richard, they have to go to school in the morning. Would, mat would really help me to understand my son, but they have. And perhaps it's taken having a son with autism to help me understand that there is something beyond asking why. That I can still live a life of abundance. You see, why is a normal question to ask, but we can't stay there. Jesus asked the Father why. And the answer was us was me. Which, when you think about it, ought to be enough for us. But when we are faced with the frightening realities of life, we tend to live lives of fear and worry. Which is the opposite of what we're told to do. We are told in Philippians 4.4, 4, and this is point three, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. When you are facing trials, this verse seems trite. And the problem is really our perspective, because we try to take a verse all by itself, read it, and expect it to fill everything up. But the reality is, there's more to it. You can't take Philippians 4, 4 alone. You have to look at the verses around it. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul knows better than anyone that life does not turn out the way you expect. He has faced more things than any of us have. And this passage shows that he is not expecting life 
to be easy, but a life characterized by worship and an attitude of gentleness, remembering the reality of the Lord's nearness, a life of prayer. All of those things are connected to this command not to be anxious. And not just any prayer, petitions, requests, and thankfulness. And those aren't easy things when life is difficult, but they are necessary. And peace is not an abstract concept. We want it to just drop down on our heads to work. No change on our part, just fix it, God. Former editor at Christianity Today and writer Sky Jatani says that we treat Jesus like the duct tape WD-40 combo pack. He's what you need to fix just about anything. But when we treat Jesus as a spiritual tool for life's problems, we don't get peace. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's impossible when we focus on ourselves. It's impossible to be anxious, not to be anxious in all our situations. And it's only when I focus on God and God first that peace is even remotely possible. I have a tendency to live a life of low-grade angst, even before Nathan. And I can't get rid of that angst on my own. And it's only when I get off of myself and get my eyes on God, when I rejoice in Him, that peace is possible. I have no idea how Nathan can go to college or get married or have a career live on his own. Those things are simply not in the cards as far as I can tell. And it's hard to rejoice when I think about those things. And all of us have our worries and we need to remember that God gives us peace, not ourselves. And I am trying to teach Nathan to pray when he's upset or worried. To ask Jesus to help him calm down. To cope with the things that bother him. And I'm learning from my own teaching to put God first, to be gentle when I am not naturally, to pray more honestly, to put my petitions and thanksgiving before God, not just laundry lists. And I'm not done. But Nathan's presence in my life has helped me to see the person that God is calling me to be. And when I move toward God, I worry less. I can rejoice in both God and in small victories. I don't know what the future holds for Nathan. But it's not mine to worry about it. It is mine to do what I can, and it's God's to care for him when I can't. The question is, do I trust God to do so or not? And that's where point four comes in. The good news. I hope that you have seen this morning that I have found bits of good news throughout the shattered expectations and the questions. That I have found what I like to call glimpses of grace, even in the hardest parts of life on the spectrum. I'm not telling you my story, Nathan's story, for sympathy or to sound spiritual at all, but to show you, to point to you the reality that we all face. 
And there are two parts to this. First is that everybody's broken. I know that doesn't sound like particularly good news, but bear with me. It is. You see, everybody's broken. All of us. The difference between Nathan and the rest of us is that we can hide our brokenness and he can't. Genesis 3 tells us the story of the fall. Humanity rebels against God and we have been paying the price ever since. But if we start reading our Bibles at Genesis 3, we are wrong. The story starts in Genesis 1 and God creates well. It is good. And in Genesis 1.27, we read that God creates us in his image, male and female. And in Genesis 3, the fall happens. But guess what? We are broken, but the image is still there. The idea is more like, think of a statue that's been knocked over, beat up. You can still see what it is. It's still there. It's just messed up. Our brokenness all shows up in different ways depending on who we are. Some of that brokenness is just more obvious than others. Here's the thing that we need to see. We are all in the same boat. And when we understand that we are all in the same boat, we can give up on the silly notions and ideas that we are somehow better or worse than anyone else. We are not. We are all in the same boat. And guess what? We can't save ourselves. We can, when we see this, we can give up on the expectations and the worry because we realize that it's not up to us to begin with. And we can start to live. And that's because of the second point. Even though we're all broken, God loves us anyway. It's right there in Genesis 3. In verse 15, God prophesies redemption the crushed head of the snake, the bruised heel. In chapter 4, God's plan for redemption begins. We see it in the story of Cain and Abel. And it keeps on moving forward until the time of Jesus. The entire Bible is the story of God's redemption of all of us. From the very beginning of creation, God has loved us even in, especially in, our brokenness. And the expulsion from Eden is not simply a curse. Verse 22 of chapter 3 tells us that God did not want us to live eternally in a fallen state. From Genesis to Revelation, God is working to redeem everything. Jesus is not simply a good moral teacher. He is not a spiritual tool to get us to heaven when we die. Jesus is the goal of the law. He is its fulfillment. Jesus is grace made manifest for us. As one song says, grace like rain falling down on us. In Romans 8, verses 18 to 22, and Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we are told by Paul that God is in the process of redeeming all of creation. 
in Christ. And that all of our brokenness will one day be wiped away. Right now, we live in the in-between time. The already but not yet time. When Jesus came, he shattered his people's expectations of a Messiah because the problem was much bigger than they thought it was. And he was there to force them to confront the expectations and the whys so that they could come to the place of rejoicing in him. Jesus Christ shatters even our diminished expectations and redeems our whys and allows us to rejoice. God can redeem any situation. I repeat, any situation. Chances are it's not going to look like what you expected, not like you want it to. And it's certainly going to demand that we die to ourselves, that we place him at the center and let go of our expectations and our whys. Even in the brokenness of my son's life on the spectrum, God is continually at work. He is redeeming my son's brokenness by the compassion I've seen in his brother and sister. They are becoming more like Christ because of their brother's brokenness. I see it in the image of God written in the smile on Nathan's face at the simplest of pleasures, how he actively wants others to be happy, always. Of how an entire school system has fallen in love with this kid. I am also reminded that in his, broken, in his brokenness that I too am broken. And that I always need to remember that my story is not unique. We are all broken people. I don't know what your whys are. What your shattered expectations are. I don't know what you're facing today. But I do know that we can rejoice even when our expectations are shattered. Even when our whys seem unending and never answered. Because I know that the small things in my life are nothing compared to what God has already done for me in Christ. We are all broken. Every last one of and God loves us anyway. Would you please stand with me for benediction? This is from Jude, verses 24 and 25, where we read, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.